Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Next Energy Capital. As such, the sponsor may make suggestions for topics, but the final control over the podcast remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Michael Bonte Friedheim, who is the founding partner and chief executive officer of Next Energy Capital. Next Energy Capital is a solar investment and asset management firm. And Michael founded Next Energy Capital in 2007. Prior to this, he was managing director in the European Energy and Power Team in the European Investment Banking Department of Goldman Sachs. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Walter. Great to be here. So, as I said, you started Next Energy Capital in 2007. What was sort of the motivation behind it? Because um, I think you came out of, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Goldman Sachs Energy and Power Team. What was your reason to start Next Energy Capital? In my career in banking, I had worked on uh, many transactions uh, across the broader energy space, but among those were were several across the years in renewable energy. And as I left banking, I was looking for a opportunity to participate in this revolution that was required to transition from a carbon-based energy system to a renewable-based energy system. And early on, uh, solar was still very much in its infancy, and I saw an opportunity to create a leading company focused exclusively on that segment in the market. And that really is is the genesis of, of Next Energy and everything we've done since then. Yeah, in 2007, solar was not quite as big as it is now. And I think also in, in sort of your, your career, you, you probably dealt more with sort of fossil fuel based uh, companies. How did you sort of make that switch to renewable and, and, and why solar? I mean, there's more than one type of renewable energy sources. Why solar? So solar uh, became our technology of choice for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a market opportunity. So in those years, Italy had put in place an attractive feed-in tariff program. And with our background in the energy sector in Italy and our experience in developing projects in Italy, we found that that was a great starting point. 
And then from there, we expanded our business to, to the UK and now across OECD markets. But it really was around the subsidy regime at the time that was necessary to create a sector that today does not need subsidies. And it was that market opportunity that we identified and led us to focus all of our efforts on that specific technology. Is it sort of easy to transfer the skills from uh, sort of more traditional forms of energy generation to solar? The, the understanding of the broader energy sector, I think, is crucial as we reflect on and consider how to approach decarbonizing it. And so my experience in banking, I think, was highly valuable to everything I've done in Next Energy. Be that understanding the energy sectors, focusing on the renewable part of it, but also interfacing with investors, building a firm from scratch, and really looking at how to achieve incremental growth year after year. So I think all of my experiences before Next Energy have contributed to making Next Energy what it is today. So 16 years ago, you started the firm. Um, I presume that the technology has changed a lot over that time. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into that development? Interestingly, the technology in and of itself hasn't really changed that much. What has changed dramatically is the efficiency and the cost of the various key components into a, a solar uh, infrastructure asset. And so the size of the panels, as an example, the modules, is very much the same today as it was 16 years ago. But the power density of that same sized module has probably increased by four times. And the price has come down on a per megawatt basis by over 90%. And those two factors, alongside a institutionalization of the solar sector, have led today solar not to require subsidies in the vast majority of markets across the world. Yeah, you mentioned that solar doesn't need subsidies these days anymore. Um, but what sort of role do regulations still play uh, in, in the investment case? And I'm sort of thinking of uh, some information that came out of the International Energy Agency, um, which says that especially European countries have introduced more policy, uh, more regulatory change um, that eases uh, permitting, in the, especially in the last 18 months. Uh, and, and that sort of all those changes is, is more than what we have seen in the last couple of decades. Um, does this still influence the investment case as it create opportunities for you? Regulation is particularly important in our sector because it covers so much of our value chain. For example, regulation covers how and with what costs and in what time horizons we can connect new power plants to the grid. So we need supportive regulation to enable the deployment of solar projects across geographies. So regulation from that perspective and, and several others remains particularly important for, for us to continue our work in building new solar projects across geographies contributing to that decarbonization. 
And there are other parts of what I would say is our broader value chain that are influenced by, by regulation. So certainly governments have a significant role to play in that energy transition timetable and implementation of strategies, but not necessarily from a funding perspective in our sector. So regulation does not need to give us more uh, subsidies or tariffs. It just needs to facilitate the work that we're doing in gaining access to, to electricity grids. Now, that's an easy thing to say, but of course, a very significant challenge because the grid systems across markets were built for a very centralized power system. And so probably many of your listeners will have read so many of the articles around the enormous amounts of capital that are required to bring the grid up to date to cope with the new power systems and the decarbonization of the power generation sector. Does solar have specific requirements to the way the grid is updated? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that solar power plants, for the most part, are small to medium sized on a relative base. So they can be very broadly distributed along a energy transition, a power transmission system. So it is more about where can we find those grid access points? And then of course, where can we find the necessary land and building permits and operating permits? But it is very much a flexible technology that can be located in, in uh, along the energy and power transmission lines very flexibly. So you've over the years invested in, I think, over 400 uh, solar power plants. Um, you mentioned that the tech, uh, technology is relatively similar. So what makes you decide that one plant is a better investment over another? Is that just simple location? Um, is it the country it's located in? So having invested in f over 400 utility-scale solar plants over the last 16 years gives us a unique insight into the sector, into the quality of assets, the various geographies, how assets perform over time. Now, when we look at a particular asset, it starts with a market analysis of the country that we are looking to invest in. And that is very much a, a detailed bottom-up and also top-down analysis. Once we've decided to enter a country, we spend a lot of time looking for the right acquisition targets, the right new power plants to build. And what determines whether we proceed or not on specific transactions, and we lose a lot of transactions because we don't like them or bid, other bidders you know, offer more, which is fine, fine for us. What brings an opportunity over the line is a holistic view of the plant, which means where is it located? What is the integration in the local environment with the local communities? How are the ESG issues dealt with? Who is the developer? Who is the construction company that we might be involved with? What is the distance to the grid? How can we sell the power? So there's a very holistic view of each opportunity. And ultimately, you know, we because we evaluate so many transactions in parallel, we choose the most attractive ones that meet all of our criteria. But it is underlining, it is a holistic analysis of each individual investment opportunity. 
Yeah, you mentioned the ESG issues. Um, I thought, well, it's a solar plant, gets an ESG tick straight away. What are some of the issues involved there? Absolutely. It, it, any new build solar power plant, of course, has an immediate positive impact from an environmental perspective as it reduces the need for carbon-based power generation. But there are many other aspects around ESG. Certainly, you know, what, what does the land look like that you are going to build the solar power plant on? How can you increase natural capital biodiversity on the site when you have built the solar power plant? How can you integrate that solar plant in the local community with jobs not impacting traditional uh, paths, for example, walkways? How can you integrate that in the local society with the local schools teaching children about renewable energy and so many aspects around that? So there's not only the environmental part, but also the social part. And from a governance perspective, really important to ensure that the project that you're looking to buy or build has pursued all of its approval processes in absolutely the right way, that your counterparties are lie are, are credible, are have, have also performed their tasks in the right way. And so also from a governance perspective, there is a lot to do when you look at the acquisition of a solar plant. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of this is talked about in the context of the energy transition and the need to decarbonize. But I think in more recent times, we've also seen the element of energy security cropping up with the, the war in the Ukraine and, and uh, the spike in energy prices, but also access to energy generation. How has that impacted the, the sort of the outlook for the solar sector? Has that increased valuations? So the solar sector has been predicted to grow incrementally over the last 10 or 15 years. Interestingly, even with those very aggressive growth predictions, the actual deployment of solar has always come out larger than what those rosy forecasts had, had suggested. The main driver for that, from my perspective, is an economic one. Today, solar power produces, solar power plants produce the lowest cost electricity for new build plants globally. So as power demand increases through the electrification of households, transport, and industry, all systems need additional power generation. And solar being the cheapest is, of course, the most attractive one by definition. But on top of contributing to lowering power prices, as you mentioned, solar power also has a significant contribution to energy independence, because once you build a solar power plant, that plant is located on the land in the country and you are replacing ultimately uh, hydrocarbon-based imports, be they coal, LNG, gas, and of course that increases energy security and independence. And the final point, obviously, is that solar also contributes significantly to the decarbonization of power systems. So you really have three concrete benefits from a economic security pricing perspective. And on top of that, you have the ESG benefits that I mentioned earlier that building a solar power plant brings to the region in which they are located. 
And in the way that solar plants are, are built, so I'm, I'm thinking of more recently, we have some of, seen some of the floating solar plants. Is, is there a different cost analysis involved as well if it's built on land versus a floating one? Absolutely, there is. You know, floating solar is a tiny proportion of the solar sector and has a whole series of operating complexities that it brings with us. So you can imagine if you have a floating solar plant, if there is a panel or part of the system that is malfunctioning, you have to drag the whole system back on land to fix it, which of course is very different than if you're on land and you have your team walking on, on the land fixing issues. And that's that's one example. It's of course much more expensive to install and the it has benefits in reducing water evaporation from those water reservoirs where where they base it on the other hand unfortunately it attracts a lot of bird activity and of course birds have a habit of soiling things that they <laughs> sit on and so there are some environmental concerns or issues around a floating solar plants so we do not have any floating solar plants in our portfolio either and and are not uh, forecasting to invest in that segment of our market. Interesting, interesting. So before the the, the war with the Ukraine, uh, we had, of course, the, the coronavirus pandemic. And, and as part of that, we had a lot of supply chain issues. Is that still something that is a theme in the, in the solar business? Um, it relies on a lot of, you know, uh, parts. Is there still a, a supply chain issue? So on the margins, there continues to be, uh, we continue to see disruptions in the supply chain, but they are they are not related to the key components. It is more related to the access to the grid, to a qualified workforce to build the, the, the solar projects, which I consider to be part of our supply chain. So if I may take a step back, when we talk about supply chain, for me, the supply chain is the grid. It is grid access, it is the landowners, it is the building and operating permits, as well as the construction companies, the workers, the technology that we built into the solar plants. So having said that, today on the technology side, we're not seeing any supply chain issues. In fact, prices for modules have come down very significantly over the last 12 months, where we are seeing challenges in, in our supply chains is as we were saying earlier, the grid access or finding sufficient capacity among the construction companies to build our solar assets the way we need them to be built with the necessary quality and care. So the asset performs over 40 or 50 years. And that also includes workforce. As I was saying earlier, the solar sector has been expanding so rapidly that of course we need more and more human resources focused on that sector to accommodate the inbuilt growth in new assets being acquired, not only by us, of course, but by, by everyone in the market across geographies, be it North America, be it Europe, be it you know China, India, Latin America, growth in solar deployment is happening so fast that we need those additional resources to, to fund and then execute those new build plants across geographies. 
Let's delve a little bit into sort of those regional opportunities. Um, there has been a lot of talk about the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. Is that something that benefits also the, the solar industry? Yes, it does. So we're actually just about to uh, start construction on a 100 megawatts new build solar plant uh, in Florida. Uh, and that plant, of course, has a positive environment stemming in part from the Inflation Reduction Act. And as I talk to our industry peers, not only in solar, but also wind and other technologies, there is certainly a increasing focus on the U.S. as a result of the IRA. Yeah. Now, another country that uh, seems to be a big player in this space is China. Um, I think it is predicted that by next year, the country's share has expanded to 55% of global annual renewable capacity deployment, uh, according, I think this is also numbers from the International Energy Agency. In terms of solar, are they also a big player and, and are you interested in investing there? In terms of solar, China is certainly a very large deployer of new build solar plants. So they not only have a significant market share in manufacturing modules, but they are also building new solar plants at a very rapid pace and at a huge scale. So definitely a high growth market. And of course, they, they have a interesting power market that they have to restructure over time that today is very strongly hydrocarbon based. And so, of course, renewable energy will help them achieve that, including, of course, solar. So a huge market, but a, a market with its own complexities. And as a OECD-focused investor, like we are via our funds, we have not reviewed investing opportunities in China because that would fall outside our investment mandate. Fair enough. So from a OECD investor's perspective, we see the main investment opportunities in North America and Europe, with smaller opportunities in other OECD markets like Chile, where we already have a significant number of, of plants in operation and under construction. And part of that analysis comes from what our investors are focused on. So our typical investor base for our investment funds is a large insurance company, pension fund, institutional type investor that is looking at OECD investments. And so those investors are not looking at us to give them emerging markets exposure. They're very large institutions, and so they have other branches of their businesses that focus on those countries. With us, they're looking for OECD infrastructure exposure, and that, of course, conditions the markets that we review and that we invest in. So with those institutional investors, um, from that multi-asset uh, portfolio perspective, where do you find that they put this? Is this a infrastructure play? Is it private equity? Do they have a separate sleeve for energy transition assets? Where do they tend to, to put this in the portfolio? So traditionally, this would be part of a infrastructure or real assets portfolio. That again is a very broad definition. 
what I am seeing is more and more of these institutional investors are breaking down what is within that infrastructure and real assets bucket. And so in the past, they would have invested only in generalist infrastructure funds. What we're seeing now is an increasing interest in specialized investment managers like ourselves because we have the track record to outperform the generalists as a specialist. Investors, of course, are looking at our track record and the track record they have across the generalists and are seeing that we can generate better absolute returns and also risk-adjusted returns versus the generalists, simply because in our case, solar is the only technology that we focus on. So everything we do with a group of you know 300 professionals now in my team is focused on solar. And you can imagine by that very definition, we are more experienced in solar, better equipped to outperform for our investors in solar, and investors are seeing that. So what are some of the risks involved in, in investing in this space? Is that mainly one of construction, maintenance? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the, the construction of a solar plant is actually a very straightforward project. And what I mean by that is when we build a solar plant, we have a procurement and construction team that gets very involved in planning and then executing the construction. We, of course, find the right engineering and construction counterparty that we sign a full-scale contract with. And so the construction of a solar plant is actually very low risk. What is more risky in that value chain is getting a project to the ready-to-build status where you can start construction. Once you've achieved all those permits, including the grid access, the land lease, the operating and building permits, and you start construction, it is very low risk if you do it correctly. So we've probably built 100 to 150 individual assets, and we've never had a construction project go awry. That makes solar more attractive than other technologies. It's a shorter construction timetable with much lower risks than if you take a biomass plant or a hydro plant or a wind plant. On the operations side, very low risk as well, because we don't have boilers, engines, moving parts, things that, that actually require significant management or reinvestment over time. A solar plant is made up of electronics. And so it has a very long life from the moment of construction without significant intervention. So from an OPEX risk perspective, it's very, very low. So, so the main risk around a solar plant is really around how we sell power over the long term. It's a 40 or 50 year uh, lifelong asset. And so we are looking to sell power for, for many years into the future. And it's similar, if not the same, for other forms of renewable energy generation. We are all selling into the same market. So I would say the main risk we have is one of the, the power price risk. But as I said earlier, we mitigate that by being the lowest, the cheapest form of power generation in the market. And so we, we are mitigating that exposure to power prices by having very, very low levelized cost of electricity. 
So if, if power prices come down, we can still generate positive outcomes for our investors, while other forms of, uh, of power generation might not be able to cover their raw material costs, their investment requirements, their operating expenses, we instead can. So does that mean uh, going forward, you will stick with solar or are you also interested to expand in other renewable forms of energy or even battery uh, storage? So today we talk about Solar Plus and Solar Plus is Solar Plus storage from, from our perspective. Increasingly, it is clear that these power systems need increasing amounts of storage capacity. Solar is a perfect opportunity to integrate storage with solar plants. So increasingly, we are looking to retrofit our existing plants with battery storage, add battery storage to our new plants. And so we see that combination of technologies as a very attractive opportunity to increase returns, but also to mitigate some of the, the risks that, that we see. So certainly, we, you should see us doing more and more energy storage over the next years. Now, we've been doing energy storage since about 2017, 2018. And so we're experienced in that technology, and we are selectively adding that to our investment strategies are the plants that we invest in where it makes sense to do so. On the other side, we are developing many energy storage projects because we see that as an important part of the future energy mix. Yeah. And what's sort of the outlook for the uh, solar plant industry? Is it is there still sort of enough growth within the industry that um, you continue to see interesting opportunities or is there sort of a saturation rate? The, the growth, you know, you cited the, the International Energy Agency. If you look at Bloomberg New Energy Finance and other sources of market analysis, you can see how solar is expected to continue doubling in size over the next years. And so today, the market opportunity is larger than I've ever seen it beforehand. If we look at having launched our fifth fund with $480 million earlier this year in July, we've never had more investment opportunities than we have today as we launched an investment vehicle. That leads us, of course, to being more selective in the investments, but the market growth continues to be absolutely huge and is expected to continue that growth over the next years. Now, another thing that people are starting to think more about is, is biodiversity um, and with the guidelines of the TFCD that, that is coming more to the front. Now, I was interested to see that it, it's something that you already incorporated in sort of the construction and maintenance of solar plants. How do you incorporate it? So, so biodiversity is something that we feel as a mission-driven organization very strongly about. And, and if you start by looking at a solar plant that is built on low-grade agricultural land, you have to imagine a farmer tilling the land twice a year, maybe three times a year, and basically killing everything that's, that's on that land. You have to imagine that same piece of land is built, on that same piece of land is built a solar plant with a fence around it that will stay in place for 40 or 50 years. And then you can imagine what 
that stability in that ecosystem means. So we we can plant uh, flowers, local wildlife is attracted to the plants that we create there, that we, we plant there. We can build small uh, tabernacle to to ex to uh, attract insects there. We can we're building bird boxes. So suddenly you have a, an asset that of course has you know the panels and all that, but is populated with sheep that graze the land, is planted with uh, local uh, plants, wild you know wildflowers and and the such, and so it actually attracts insect life. It attracts small mammal life to it, and so it is a multiplier of biodiversity on that same site that previously was tilled two or three times a year. So if you imagine, if you, in your mind you can imagine that that change from one use to a solar plant, you can see how a solar plant is actually very additive from a natural capital and biodiversity perspective. It's something that we have been looking at since we started the company on how to improve everything we do from a biodiversity and natural capital perspective on those sites. And we are undertaking studies on the soil of our plants to see what happens to soil when it is left alone in a solar plant over 30 or 40 years in terms of you know diet, uh, microorganisms, carbon absorption, all those things. I think we'll see that the soil becomes a lot healthier in a solar plant than as per its previous use. And again, we're, we're preparing university studies over the long term to assess those impacts. Okay, so is that study on the way? We, we are just about to launch it with uh, two UK universities that will review, I hope, all of our UK sites. We are taking soil samples on the vast majority of new assets that we build before we start construction. So we are certainly in the process of organizing that long-term study. Now, of course, it is a study that's going to take, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years to have some evidence around. But certainly it is one of the areas that I think we can study further to demonstrate the biodiversity and natural capital benefits of solar plants to an ecosystem. And I saw at one stage you also had a uh, an owl cam where you could see barn owls uh, nesting. How did that come about? Well, that's very much part of our ESG strategy is, is attracting you know, local uh, wildlife, including birds. And so we, we do build, as I was saying, those uh, local, we call them, you know, insect hotels on the ground and also bird nesting uh, structures around the the site of, of the power plants. So it's a it, it comes about through a very proactive working with specialist organizations that can help us identify what can we plant, what can we build in that specific location, what type of small mammals or birds can we attract that would traditionally be in that area and then implementing those strategies as a part of everything we do in managing the portfolio of solar projects in, in every geography that we, we are active in. Yeah, maybe we can finish up with one last question. I think in 2017, you also launched a foundation, the Next Energy Foundation. What is the aim of that foundation and how does it sort of interact with the business? So the foundation is something that we are particularly excited about because it really finds its way and its position in our overall mission, which is to generate 
a more sustainable future by leading the transition to clean energy. So the foundation receives 5% of my group's profits every year. And it also seeks donations from third parties. So we have corporate and private individuals that make donations on top of the donations from our group. And with that capital, we support projects across the world that further the use of renewable energy, further education, are addressing crises in the world, and anything that, that we can have a significant impact that somehow is related to, to our mission or education or, or renewable energy. And if you go to the website, which is nextenergyfoundation.org, you can see a selection of the incredible projects that our teams undertake. Really important for us is that 100% of the funds that we raise go to projects. So the foundation has no overhead costs. We cover all of the, 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 the minor operating expenses that the foundation has so that we ensure that all the capital raised goes to specific projects. And so that part is particularly important because we don't want to you know, use the foundation's income to cover any costs, but actually have it go directly to projects. And the projects, for the most part, are brought by our team members, and then they execute those projects. So it's really exciting as well for our team because they can identify projects in their respective geographies or areas of interest. They bring them to the uh, to the board of trustees of the foundation. And if they are approved, then that team member executes and implements the project. So it's a very hands-on from the team's perspective as well in implementing what the foundation does. And again, I would encourage you to, to visit that website because there are many projects that we are particularly proud of having contributed to. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that also sounds like it's a good uh, form of motivation for, for the staff at Next Energy Capital. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you and uh, yeah, very interesting topic. Absolutely. Thanks for your time this morning. Good to speak. All the best. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.